The Academic Podcast Agency. Hi and welcome to the Whitetail Stories podcast, a podcast series exploring experimental audio storytelling in all its glory and asking the question why we carry out the strange act that is telling stories. I am your co-host, Daniel Marcus Clark. I am a storyteller, story lover and sonic storytelling enthusiast and I'm joined here as always by the wonderful Will Hood. My name's Will Hood, sometime documentary maker, podcast producer, story fanaticist and we're back in your ears for what I think is perhaps one of the most interesting pieces we've shared to date. We are jumping off the back of the last episode, which was an inquiry into dystopian narrative. And through our meanderings, through our chat, we came up with this really interesting question, which has been plaguing me, really, since we had that chat, Dan, about why in popular culture, you know, whether it be film, TV, books do we have a myriad of dystopian narratives you know we love a dystopian narrative but we don't seem to be as good at coming up with utopian narratives now we thought we'd run with that theme and it's been surprisingly difficult to find you know something that you would maybe think of as a classic utopian narrative but i believe we have found something which really hits that nail on the head and perhaps not in the most obvious way uh, but I'll let Dan tell you about it as he discovered it so he'll give you a quick introduction then we have a listen so this is the island 1961 it was um, originally a travel essay that was released as part of a collection by Tove Janssen um, who's most famous as the author of the Moomins author and illustrator of the Moomins and she lived on an island for many years and she wrote this as a sort of travel essay um, and it came out in 1961 and exactly 50 years later um, the Scottish composer Erland Cooper released this version which is a scored version read by her niece Sophia Janssen. It's a beautiful piece, it's delicate and it's elegant and there's so much to discuss after listening to this so that's why we've chosen it. Mm. It's, it's really special. To me, what's so fascinating and beguiling about it is that perhaps uh, paradoxically, not all is perfect in this utopian. And I think that's the genius of it, really. So let's have a listen. Tove Janssen, The Island, 1961, scored by Erland Cooper. And here we go. Translated by Thomas Teal. It's astonishing the number of people who go around dreaming of an island. Sometimes they're deliberate people who search for their island and secure it. And sometimes the island dream is a passive symbol of what lies one step out of reach. The island, privacy at last, distance, intimacy, a self-contained universe without bridges and fences. Shielded and isolated by water, which at the same time opens up the possibility of voluntary contact. A possibility never exploited. Walking around an island shoreline has some of a circle satisfying finality. The shore, 
the narrow border between land and sea, changeable and treacherous, formed by heedless violence and strewn with curious objects that the sea has polished and given its own suppleness and strength. There is nothing so red as a bank of seaweed reflecting a sunset, soft stones and stiff grass. A chaos of tumbled boulders mixed with elegant unexpected terraces of sand and untouched tiny landscapes reflected in the black surfaces of small potholes full of water. Seen from the sea, the island has a dreary protective camouflage. It looks small and uninteresting. Mostly just rocks with a tuft of crooked trees. No hill, no harbour. After sunset, it's a black silhouette, a sloppy stain on a panorama of fine cobalt, Naples yellow and cerulean. The horizon disappears and scooters and long-tailed ducks fly just above the water in a silent, determined line. The gulls have settled for the night and sit motionless on the rocky islet nearby, all their heads turned in the same direction. You walk around your island. No one can come, no one has to leave, and you feel completely at ease. The clock stopped quite a while ago, and it's a long time since you wore shoes. Your feet find their own way, confident and independent. They've grown as sensuous as hands. Quickly, with pleasure, they take note of sand and moss, seaweed, granite. Your clothes are soft and light and have lost their color long since, as has your hair which is like beach grass and doesn't bother you. Everything about yourself has been leveled out and is now neutral and not especially interesting. You're your own companion who seldom talks and never asks questions. A person you can live with. Your existence is turned outward in calm observation of familiar things that constantly change, giving you a remarkable sense of security and excitement. The shifting sea, the rising and sinking shoreline, everything that grows and dies and sprouts up again in some new surprising place, the way the trees and the bushes survive the storms, the natural process of decay and what you've built and the satisfaction you find in recognition and repetition. When you've been alone for a very long time, you begin to listen differently, to feel the organic and the unexpected in your surroundings and to see the incomprehensible beauty of the material world in everything. Old entrenched thoughts leap out in new directions, or they shrink and die. Dreams grow simpler, and you wake up smiling. It is a fragile structure. You pay for it with fear of dark and sudden panic. A rustling in the darkness, a boat on the horizon. But at the same time, your calm, repeated, purposeful, everyday acts build a protective wall that grows higher and more stable. Pulling up your boat before the storm, lighting your lamp for the night, collecting and chopping wood. The problems are simple and they can be solved. You're running out of fresh water. There's a leak in the roof. The wind is blowing down a tree. A grouse has broken a window. A net has vanished. 
The surest time is early spring, a protective space between city anxiety and full summer, which is green and contented and sociable. There are no boats moving among the islands. The sand is untouched, and the island has taken a small furtive step toward wilderness since you were last there. Its colors are cold and serious, fragile as the ice on the potholes. The sky is glass and utterly impassive. All is expectation, listening, with none of summer's flirtatious charm. At night, the long-tailed ducks sing, always from an island farther out. You hear them when you get up to light a fire before dawn. Freezing, wildly happy, you stand at the door and see the barren land and rock in the half-light. The plants that withered and died a year ago like a brown blanket all over the plants that have just decided to start growing. The forgotten possibility of life as a gift is suddenly thinkable. The fire catches in the stove. You snuggle down to sleep and recognize the silence and are at peace with yourself. to carry heavy stones, to wrestle a log out of the shallows, using leverage and muscle power to maneuver the boat around the point against a strong southwest wind. The water is still ice cold, the ground hard, and the light grows stronger every day. You know that warmth and paradise are there within reach. And every year, you forget that happiness is in the anticipation, not fulfillment. But summer follows its promise and then passes. September becomes October and the island is once again listless and indifferent. The last drift net boats sail by as night falls and their lights vanish out to sea. There's a new silence, without birds. The colors are heavy, and the island is trampled and tired. It develops a hostile face that is fascinating. Fear of the dark drives you out of the cabin with its three black windows into the narrow net shed out back, a secure, down-to-earth space that will never surrender you to danger. The danger arrives with the autumn storms, the real storms that don't die down at sunset, that can hold the island locked in for 10 days that alter the shoreline and set the cabin vibrating. And the peculiar noises, strongest inside the cabin, but audible in the net shed too. On the fourth day of the storm, ragged tonal fragments like electronic music, laughing voices and cries and distant bells, the hard sound of feet running around the house. They don't matter as long as you turn all the mirrors to the wall in time and check the blanket across the window. 
When the sun has gone down and everything purple and threatening rises up over the island, you have to convince yourself that nothing can peer into the net shed. There mustn't be a single crack. And you have to fill the lamp every evening, for it mustn't go out. You can't afford to get frightened in October. The fear of being afraid. Not of people, of what look like people, but aren't. The morning is transparent and uncaring. New banks of seaweed are heaped up on the lee shore. The island dries and shrinks and tries to shake you off. Everything has gone dry, moldy, sparse. The things carried ashore by the sea don't linger. The waves wash them impatiently away again. The land is peeled bare by the winds and spume blows up to cover the windows and make them blind. The water rises. Everything you've built and collected has to be carried higher. Every day higher still. You get the feeling that your paradise is sinking into the sea and you have a strange desire to go with it. Everything around you surrenders itself either to death or survival. One day, just before twilight, a curtain of rain comes across the water. For a few hours, the colors are bright and vivid again. The landscape pulls itself together and looks rich. Then it lets go, and the land is no longer alive, just waterlogged. It swells up like the sea around the point. Doors and windows can't be opened, and all that's beautifully brown and withered becomes a wet clot. The island is dead, but still far from nicely buried. The last of the summer birds, the city people, flee, flapping off in alarm. I fled when the wind shifted one night as the storm abruptly ended. Food and wood were gone. There was only the wind. That last day, I lay on the floor and saw pictures in the knot holes in the ceiling. All my things had been packed and ready by the door for a week, and the room was empty and the curtains taken down. Then something black and swift swept past my windows. Birds, with long pointed wings, flew around the cabin close to the walls. Over and over and over again. Deep in the idiotic fantasies of solitude, I was convinced that unknown creatures of catastrophe were drawing a circle of destruction around the house. The wind shifted that night. The sudden quiet woke me. Because the empty house was surrounded by catastrophe, I forgot my fear of the dark, flung open the door and ran out. Ran and stumbled. The island at night was an alien island threw my baggage into the boat. Up at the cabin, the lamp shone all alone on the slope, much weaker than the self-confident lighthouses along the horizon. I closed the cabin, hard to turn the key, which hadn't been used for so long and didn't want to work, my light turning the juniper bushes into monsters. A new breeze began blowing softly from out on the dark water. I ran to the shore, stumbled and ran, felt how the island hated me, wanted to be rid of me, tried to push out the boat, which was too heavily loaded, wept and swore and pushed, and then it slid free. I got the oars out. On the water, the darkness was not dangerous, and I was ashamed. You summer reptile, I thought. You think you love your island but you have never toughed out a winter together. You're a summer swallow, a sunbather, a parasite feeding on cheap solitude. You play at being primitive and picturesque. You're a common city snob. Out there, everything was black. A new wind was rising out at sea. I heard it coming as if it were walking on the water, 
but not yet touching it. I rode on instinct somewhere up ahead was the safety of the mainland. The mainland with its sleeping houses and farther in its brightly lit city. Where I live. Where I belong. All winter. Suddenly I stop rowing in the middle of the bay. And for the first time that winter, that escape, I began to yearn uncontrollably for my island. Wow. Isn't that stunning? Yeah. I mean, I know we, uh, we say wow after everything we listen to, <laughs> but there's something is really quite special about that, isn't there? There's, there's so much going on there. I mean, I've heard it a few times now, but it just keeps on giving. It's just, yeah, the, the, both in the text and in the sort of accompanying score and sound design, it's just, it feels so harmonious as a piece. Yeah, harmonious is a is a good word for it. Actually, harmony, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, um, where to begin? I mean, the before we get into the text, perhaps let's give the proper due reverence to Erland Cooper because that score and the sound design is um, is fantastically moving in the way mm. that it. It captures natural uh, landscapes, but not in an obvious way, right? There's nothing too literal about it. But you get that kind of rhythm of tides coming in and out of this island scene. That's how I hear it anyway, with those strings. Yeah, I got the same thing. And it, it felt like in, in terms of its movements, it it starts and ends with the sea, which sits, you know, perfectly for this kind of sense of zooming in on the island and then running away from it yeah. at the end. Yeah, Beautifully yeah. done. And, and there's a perfectly sparse use of sound design, isn't there, in that you get things that perhaps aren't that obvious as cues, like the crackling fire, the warmth of that. There's gorgeous, a storm yeah. that comes in at one point, which is really invocative. I mean, to me, it sounds um, a little uh, eno Okay, um, yeah, yeah, I, I get that too. In that kind of warm, undulating kind of soundscape place. And I think he kind of, he's obviously a composer who really understands the emotion of sound because it, it strikes right. me listening to it that he uses it much more as an emotional palette than he does as a, a kind of direct thing. You know, you get the feeling yeah. of the spaces, uh, yes. but it's very understated, very elegant, and it's constantly moving. You know, it's constantly yeah. developing yeah, sure. ideas. 
doing a little bit of digging, apparently all the sound recordings were made on the island um, in Finland where Jensen lived. Oh, wow. Okay, so yeah, they're yeah. authentic sounds of authentic the place sound. he's describing. Exactly, yeah. And wow. I think he is a... Um, he was born and raised in the Orkney Isles, so obviously he has an affinity for this kind of sense of space. But the but the island it was based on was much smaller. It took apparently five minutes from to walk from one end to the other. It was a, right. a small kind of well, you get you see it here in the text this kind of small yeah. craggy rock. Isn't that that's such a commitment to the cause, isn't it? I mean, I know we've talked about this with previous pieces of um, I'm thinking particularly of the bells in Europe, but just the the discipline and the um yeah the commitment to go and collect those sounds from the place yeah itself you know there's some there's a sincerity about that which i think you can hear i mean i'm i'm in awe of the atmosphere that's been created but i mean surely that's got something to do with it right i would totally and and the kind of harmony that you get between the between the text and the uh, and the score i think that's got to have been inspired by him visiting the actual place where, where this where this was created. You know, there's an understanding that that comes through that just is, is sort of unquestionable. So let's um, let's open the uh, text and and what it means. This incredible story, right? This story mm. we're being told. Now we start off with this. Reference to the number of people that go around dreaming of an island. Yeah. To me, on as I say, rehearing this, I've now heard it a few times. There's such a perfect setup because it it is it's a wide opening, right? You've got this kind of welcoming into this what I feel is this kind of allegorical poem of this is everybody's psyche, this is everybody's yeah. dream. Again, referencing back, you know, to our previous episode discussion about utopias and dystopias, there's this sense of a woman that is setting out to um, to make the perfect place, right? Yeah. And she's relating to you, the listener, as uh, I'm sure you're also one of those people that has occasionally dreamed of creating your perfect place. You know, it, it's such a kind of like big like Jungian archetype kind of yearning that we all have totally and I think Jansen was a master or mistress which is probably more appropriate of creating the universal from the deeply personal and it's you know if you, if you read or, or or learn about her life a lot of things that became the movements that you can just take as kind of these these wonderful children's books were directly influenced by her life experiences, be them, you know, the comets in the sky being directly influenced by the bombs that were happening at that time in the war and the threat of it. Or there was a whole thing um, as a as a gay woman in that time and keeping her sexuality under wraps, there was this whole thing around that came out in the movement books of of the, the secret treasure and the secret um, that got locked away between her and the two of the fe- the two female characters, which became something that was a symbol in the book and, and becomes sort of more universal and broader. But in her real life, it was very much just her reflecting on exactly, you know, this cathartic experience of, it, of reflecting um, her experiences in her life. And I think she does it beautifully here as well in a very, making something that is deeply personal to her and deeply observed into something that is so universal. Yeah, wow. Okay, so I, I don't really remember the Moomins. I mean, I kind of remember when I see images of them, I think, okay, yeah. I watched that when I was a kid, but I don't really remember any of the content. But I mean, I think that's fascinating in itself, isn't it? The idea that the narratives that are suppressed at any given time in a culture will find avenues out into the open air, you know, and the Often idea... The yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that it's can be found... Uh, suppressed adult themes and narratives can be found expressed in a very lovely way in children's storytelling. It's yeah, kind of cool. The world of the uns- the subconscious, which is, you know, all creatives are dealing with all the time. Mm. So to carry on with the opening, we're not going to go through every word, but there's just, it's littered with the most 
beautiful uh, self-contained sentences and sentiments, isn't it? So in addressing this kind of universal of uh, that people harbour this kind of secret fantasy to disappear to some paradise, she literally describes it or, or asks the question of uh, perhaps an island is a passive symbol for what lies just out of reach. Yeah, isn't that lovely? Really, really nice. Yeah. And it comes back in the piece in that line that happiness is in the anticipation and not the fulfilment. So there's the, there's the kind of that lovely conflict between the projection of what it means to have this privacy without borders. And then also what comes after it, you know, is this is this realization of the hardness of it, which comes across so clearly. And yet in a, what's really interesting to me is that there's no loss of love for the place in realising the struggle of it. Yeah, well now, to me, that seems to be essential to the integrity of the piece as a mm. whole. But also, I'm going to keep hammering on about this idea of utopian and dystopian narratives because I think it's really, really interesting. The, the opening, what it does so blissfully, both sonically and with the text, is that it creates this natural state, right? This sense of an ego which is being uh, dissolved. Um, your dreams become simpler. Yeah. You know, your problems are simple, but they can be solved. You know, there's this wonderful harmony. There's that line about your um, feet becoming as sensuous as hands. Yeah. You know, so there's this, this return to the natural. Now, in the last episode... We talked a lot about this idea of simulation, right? And how key to the dystopian narrative is the fact that the audience can see that the protagonist is in a simulation, a simulation of life. So I'm thinking of those big novels um, and, and films, you know, THX 1138, Brave New World, uh, perhaps 1984, also your To Sleep to Dream piece. The protagonist is knows that there's something wrong, knows that it isn't quite right, but it's it's the audience which can see that they are in a simulation. Now, what I think is really fascinating about uh, the island is that this return to the natural is this sense of stripping away everything that's artificial, right? Everything that could be conceived as a simulation of life. She is discarding. And there's a bliss which is being encountered from that. And to me, that's incredibly powerful. Um, you know, kind of goosebumps on your arm kind of feeling of, wow, that's the dream. It's the return to Eden. Um, now, where I think it, where it gets really interesting that, and this is what you've just picked up on, is that this place is also not perfect. You know, the natural world isn't a place of just unadulterated pleasure for for human beings. Yeah, it's picking up on the thing of of dystopias and the and the thread from last week in context of this piece. I was reflecting this morning that there has to be conflict in a story, right? There has to be a conflict. That's how it works. You have you have someone or something that's setting out to get something and there's something that's fighting against it. And so a dystopia is kind of easier in some ways is that in that the whole environment is fighting against the individual. The system is fighting against the individual for this kind of basic need that you can see. Whereas a utopia is more complicated because we're taking, in some ways, it feels like we're taking that conflict out, you know, which is why if you think about Huxley's The Island, the conflict's still there. You know, it has to have a proportion as a story for it to make sense. Otherwise... It's just a portrait of, of happiness. But what's interesting about this piece for me is that the conflicts in the language is constantly in the environment. So there is still that sense of conflict. There's still something that is fighting against this individual looking for this kind of peace. But it f what's, what I find fascinating about it is, there's, is she sort of has given into it. You know, there's that amazing line there's at the end acceptance. where she's... There's a total acceptance. And there's yeah. that amazing line at the end where 
something's talking to her. We don't know what it is, but it's this, I wrote down the line, you're a summer swallow, a sunbather, a parasite preying on cheap solitude. Wow. So there's this kind of, there's an internal conflict that's happening with her relationship, but she never questions the darkness of the place. This, it's, it sits like a love poem in that way. In the same way that any of our relationships there's all this beauty and there's all these things that we hate about people that or things that we get close to as well. You know, there's always a conflict. And, and it's it, necessary for it to be real, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you, you mentioned uh, the island there with Aldous Huxley. Um, so for, uh, I'm sure our erudite audience will be fully aware of, uh, of the back catalogue of Aldous Huxley, but it was one of his last novels, as I understand it. And it was... I believe written as a kind of um, counter counterweight to the very famous Brave New World, and um, I mean it's a great book, but in many ways uh, it's got a lot of similarities to this piece, and not just in the name, in the sense that right from the beginning there are dark realities to life. There are there's death, and there is loss, and there is suffering, um, yet. At the same time, there is a human society which I suppose is attempting to be honest about that and incorporate it into their best version or the author's vision for their best version of of the life they could be living. And and there's a lot of similarities in this, right? Absolutely. I I think where it differs is that and it's and why it's it's interesting that we're talking about this piece in the context of dystopias and utopias is that it's not projected into the future it's not a projection of 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 what might be mm. but instead it's a kind of observation of what is i'm going to challenge you on that and and again i haven't read that text for a long time but i would suggest and, and this is necessary i think to both narratives that both are completely timeless necessarily mm. they could be ancient they could be in the past they could be set in the future right there's very there's nothing in uh tove jansen's piece which dates, dates it, it. Yeah. nothing at all right what i think again i return to this idea of the simulation what is important i think is it's free from technology as we understand technology, you know, as yeah. we live with technology now. And so is that stripping away of the things that could be considered to be a simulation. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that it couldn't be set in some post-apocalyptic uh, future, right? Like yeah. many of the dystopians we've talked about. Except, I guess, you know, knowing what we know now about climate change and the way things are headed it feels like a moment in time because it's so untouched. You know, it's so, it's so alive. Everything is so alive. And that's the thing that really, um, really resonates with me is how alive everything is in this world, in this island, you know, both the place, which is kind of almost taken as a character, the sea, the birds, they're all given equal weight. And in some ways the human becomes sort of a, a, an observer or, or a big a, a kind of part in this grander play, which kind of chimes with the, you know, we were listening to things like Manhattan Tower and we were talking about this kind of idea of place as character. This very much has it. Like I know the island more than I know the individual, I think, through this through this portrait. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. And I mean, before it starts getting slightly dark, there's this sense of her being absorbed into the place, mm. isn't it? Like the colours of her clothes... Uh, fade and there's a, isn't there a line about how uh, uh, everything about you becomes leveled out and uninteresting? Yes, that was, I wrote that like line that. down. Wasn't that fascinating? Yeah, but that like so there's this sense of of ego dissolution and this sense of being absorbed by the place. Now, when it goes dark, and I, I love the description. There's such a kind of um, an evocative scene here and i want to know what you make of it what your reading is but when she's in the hut essentially sheltering from the storm you know the so the seasons have changed there's first of all she's afraid of the noises outside and not frightened of things that a human 
but things that are like humans. Like that is a wonderful piece of language play. But then she makes a big uh, point of this of describing how important it is to turn the mirrors to face the yeah. wall. What's your reading of that? I mean, I, I guess, you know, my simple brain is thinking that it's a very practical act probably <laughs> because it's followed by the, all the blankets are secured. But mm. my metaphorical brain is, you know, we're going into a point of the, of the narrative where she's, where she's starting to see her own fear of the, of the, of the environment. Mm. And so maybe that's what she's trying to rally against is her own fear. And, and interestingly, and just, just from doing a bit of digging, I found this thing that was basically saying, so her and her, her partner lived there for many years. I think it was like, you know, sort of around 20 summers they spent there. And at the start of the 90s, it says, island life was proving too much for the now elderly couple. And she wrote, and last summer something unforgivable happened. I started to fear the sea. Um, the giant waves no longer signified adventure, but fear, fear and worry for the boat and all the other boats that were sailing in bad weather. So this kind of fear you get at the end in real yes. life overcame her. It, 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 it battered at her shore and she ended up moving, they moved away from the island. Yeah. And so I guess, you know, looking at with that lens, turning the mirrors to the wall is to not see this kind of inevitability of, of actually how fragile and how small you are against the elements. Mm. I, 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 it's, it's quite eloquent how you described it with the, uh, to not want to be confronted by her own fear. Mm. I think that's, that's a really nice way to put it. I mean, again, uh, for me, I get this, it, it becomes the opposite of those earlier descriptions of her being dissolved into nature, becoming one with nature. To me, I get this sense that that's, that's an aspiration, right? That's the dream. That's the paradise to return to some kind of animal, pure state where then the fear, you know, separates her from nature. Yeah. And so to see herself is this stark reminder of actually you are apart from this place, you know, you are. Yeah. Because by the time it gets to the end, uh, she is chastising herself isn't she for not being almost good enough for the island and yeah. i really like the way that you described it just earlier of um of it being a love letter to the island because this sense that it's never the island's fault you know the island just is in oh, its yeah. natural grandeur it's she's at fault for not being able to truly uh, appreciate and assimilate all of its different um, aspects. And it ends with that, that beautiful line where she, you know, she lands back on land, the mainland and she starts uncontrollably to yearn for her island. You know, it's like, oh, it's... Yeah, which, which brings us very pleasingly back to the beginning, right? And this idea that it's the aspiration, it's the heaven just out of reach, yeah. which is actually... There's something about that which is the active ingredient of being human or, or something yeah, like yeah. that. I mean, it's meta, isn't it? It's huge. I mean, it's massive. Are you familiar with the Divine Comedy, Dante? Yeah. Oh, no, I, th I thought you meant the, the popular group <laughs> led by Neil <laughs> Hamlin. Yeah, I know that's good. Yeah, no, uh, I, I've never read it. I've never read it. Well, I, I've read I've read bits of it. Um, and it, it, I mean, it is, it's quite a, quite a difficult read, but there's all sorts of interesting, I mean, it's 14th century uh, Italian poet, um, Dante, who, who I believe is kind of like the Italian Shakespeare. Um, but it's often held up as this great piece of medieval um, art in the sense of it is, it expresses the medieval worldview of how, uh, humanity and also the earth and the heavens were supposed to interact with each other and so the very the very basic narrative um and I, I won't do it justice here really but it's a man who reaches middle age and this seems to be quite an important bit it opens and he's lost in a wood um so he's in some distress 
But then he finds this guide, Virgil, who says, basically, let me show you um, everything as it truly is, and takes him on this guide. And first they go through hell, which a lot of people know about Dante's Inferno is perhaps the most popular of the three books. But then they also go through purgatory and paradise, paradiso. Now, the point of me telling you this is one because i think this is up there right in that sense of huge meta-narrative you know dante's Mm. the divine comedy even um the bible you know the garden of eden genesis type story it's got those same universal timeless themes but what's lovely and has stuck in my mind about uh paradise the third book of the divine comedy is that it is as you would expect everything that a human could desire. However, he's told in no uncertain terms that he can't stay. He doesn't belong there. And there's a weight to that, which to me really resonates with the end of this piece, you know, is that she appreciates that she can't stay there. But it's almost, again, because she's not good enough for the sublime, real you know, visceral, natural beauty, which is the island. It's, that's, I mean, that's such a powerful parallel to pull. And, you know, and, and, and thinking of, of both that and the Garden of Eden, which, you know, which hold very similar narrative shapes. Yeah. You know, you think of a world that was completely saturated in religious story. To me, I always get this sense of kind of proto-psychology to it in the sense yeah. of people are, being given supporting narrative, uh, perhaps not in a directive way of how they should live, which I think is how we understand religion a lot now. But I think probably in its day, it was more, how should you feel about what you're going through? But, you know, it is a very human experience, isn't it? To feel that despair that heaven is just out of reach or that yeah. you've come from somewhere beautiful, but now you've lost it. You know, I should think in all of its different shapes and forms, that is played out again and again and again in um, countless psyches, you know, throughout time. And it's deeply rooted in us. You know, the experience for me of becoming a father and holding this baby in my arms was this overwhelming sense of this thing is perfect. I don't Mm. want to mess it up. And and so... begs the question, what are we? <laughs> what, is, what is going on? Because I don't wow. know, it's, it's sitting in this piece, isn't it? It's that thing of that we're so aware of our flaws as, human, we're so, as humans. We're so, I don't know, I can't even put it to No, 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 that's good. That, that, that's beautiful. It's, I mean, I think, I think a newborn child um, is perfect, right? And again, it's difficult to you reach for words for this and it's difficult to not uh, find words that sound somewhat religious. And I don't mean um, them to be, but you need it for the gravitas almost, you know, a newborn is completely without sin, aren't they? And that they haven't made any mistakes yet. I I think it's like looking through the lens of this piece, it's something else in that it's just, things of the natural world you know they're mm. just they they are as they're meant to be and it's i remember um years ago training with someone and he used to talk uh, a lot about about thinking as the thin king as this kind of character that sits on top of your head and and has no real uh sort of sense of what is but makes all these weird choices and kind mm. of messes everything up there is something perhaps that separates us from the animal kingdom. And at least in part, that is our ability to produce abstract thoughts, you know, and complex abstract thoughts. And we've done a lot with that, right? You know, we have completely um, changed and manipulated our environment and we've built civilizations and, We've created, I don't know, um, ovens and uh, sports cars <laughs> and, you know, and Netflix. But it has, in doing that, we have denied ourselves 
perhaps yeah. the immediacy of actually experiencing the beauty of life, you know, the beauty of the natural world, which again is so evocatively and beautifully done at the beginning of this piece, right? You know, she returns to the to the world, yeah. And I think throughout it, I think that's that's what's really powerful about this piece um, is that it's a glorious observation of everything in all its ugliness and all its beauty. You know, it's just these gentle observations of what is. And and it, it, it's interesting still that we're talking about dystopias and narratives because that is a very human thing to project oneself into the future and think what could be better or what could be worse. But what this piece signifies to me is, is, is a meditation. It's someone who is present and observing and there's a utopia in that. It's, you know, it's, it's fascinating to have this conversation because it is, I don't, I don't mind it, but it's almost too big to put into words, isn't it, what this piece signifies. I really feel like we've gone to the very centre of the earth here of, uh, of why we tell stories. I mean, these are big, epic narratives we're dealing with right now. And I think that perhaps this is a good time to take a short break. We've reached episode 10 and... Um, We're going to take a couple of months out just to reflect upon uh, the episodes that we've made and also to have a really good route around to think about what material we want to include in future episodes. If you're listening to this and you are having to sit on your hands because you're bouncing up and down because you know the stories that we should be covering... Either you've made something yourself or you know somebody that has or you've just heard a piece which you think it should absolutely be featured, then please do get in touch with us. If you enjoyed this as ever, share it. You know, sharing is caring. And we will see you for episode 11 or episode 1, series 2, um, some point after the summer. You're a good man, Dan. I've enjoyed these chats. And um, they really give my brain like some kind of... I have a feeling after each of these listening sessions that my brain has been given a kind of nutritious meal to chew on. And yeah, I don't know how you feel about it, but it's like for the for the next until I see you again, like my brain is constantly turning over these narratives and yeah. trying to make new sense and new connections about them. Yeah. And it's really got me excited and made me even more passionate about how important it is that that these narratives are out there and I guess shared with people. You know, we get hit by so many 30 second videos on social media, but on all media just coming at you that to take the time out to absorb and consume a well constructed and properly thought about narrative something that isn't disposable it feels really good feels really wholesome yeah 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 and it's uh, and it's nice what we hope to do is to create a platform for people to be able to share this kind of work um, because it feels like there's there's not necessarily one at the moment so that's part of the driver for us so yeah. do share anything that you're making or know of and we will see you in five minutes okay we'd love to hear from you we'll see you very very soon signing out season one from the white Hell stories podcast farewell bye for now <laughs>